Welcome to None Dare Call It Ordinary, a podcast that digs into the unusual, unorthodox, and downright unsettling beliefs found at the depths of the internet and the heights of paranoia. I'm your host, Dylan, and with me is the Holocene, Brent. Oh, very good. Nice. That's like very fitting for today, too. Exactly. Bringing in my knowledge, I believe that is the current geological age we're in. Yeah. I believe that is uh, after the last ice age, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's right. Uh, And it will, uh, you know, things are still melting, uh, unfortunately. Uh, So (laughs) that uh, that has not ended uh, in quite a while. But uh, while we wait for all ice on Earth to melt, uh, we do have a few announcements. One, as we said before, we do have a live stream coming up February 6th. That's a Saturday, and that will be 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us over on YouTube. We've got we're trying out a few new things. We've got some, you know, capital insurrection news to go through. We're going to make it more current events, I guess, for lack of a better term, just kind of the unusual, unorthodox, and deeply unsettling (laughs) news that we encounter that doesn't 100% fit on the podcast. Because, you know, this is, we're all about ideas on the podcast. We're about thought leaders. But there's a lot of folks who are unusual, unorthodox, unsettling who are not exactly thought leaders. (laughs) They're more action leaders. And so that's what the, that's what the the live stream is going to be about. And so again, that's happening Saturday, February 6th. You could find the link to that on the website, nondarecalledordinary.com. Also, something we announced on our last bonus episode, we now can be texted. If you want to text us, you can. We actually have a phone number. That number is 313-880-3423. And you can send us texts. We might start sending out announcements via that as well. So if you want to get texts from us, uh, that is going to be the way to do it. You know, we're still kind of experimenting with it. Yeah, exactly. But what really matters is Good. right now you can text us and we could text you back. Uh, and it doesn't cost anything. It just costs whatever a regular text message costs. You know, that's going to depend on your situation. We got a whole bunch of legal rigmarole on there, you know. Uh, but yeah, right now you will not be bothered by us because we have nothing planned to send out that way. But if you want to just tell us something in real time, like, hey, we think you suck real bad. You know, <laughs> if you want us to know that. <laughs> Uh, you can send that to us immediately. Again, that number, 313-880-3423. And you can use and now, that, at, um, you can use that on, um, at your Walgreens, at your local CVS or Walgreens, too, to get a discount. Just get, uh, yeah, you can try. Yeah, as far as, Maybe it'll uh, work. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you can get a discount. I suppose you can you actually can, use Jenny's number. I can't believe I'm giving this secret out. Like 8675309. Sometimes that works. Oh. You just got to find the right area code. Yeah, you got to find only in San Francisco. I think that works. Uh, Wait, Dylan, before we start, I have to say something else, too. Yes. Because I know, you know, we're we aren't live streaming tomorrow because it's during the day, really. And I got to work. But the inauguration is tomorrow. So that's that's which is today, hopefully, if you're listening to it. Yeah, exactly. So you will probably be hearing about this under a new administration. The um, the trans cat girl Antifa army Mm -hmm. has probably already taken over your town yep by this point i don't know if we're going to be legal anymore yeah we might not um, be. but hopefully we can get through did you know did you um, hear though like the most important news i don't know if you heard who's playing at the inauguration i heard Ed some Biden's. news about that garth brooks yes yeah and guess who's playing at um trump's farewell event who chris Gaines. so oh. little less known but uh, so yeah but yeah so uh with that this is the first announcement of the Biden era. We started this podcast under Trump. This is yeah, the we did. 
first time in under call it ordinary history that we're changing presidents. So yeah. under the Biden presidency, the first Novus Ordo presidency, I like to keep <laughs> saying. So what is it we're talking about today, Brent? Well, thanks for asking, Dylan. Um, part two, actually, part two of the actual science textbook I had in my high school class. So yes. that is a continuation. The science, so like, not in quotation marks, the textbooks, no, however, textbook, textbook is exactly. in quotation marks. Science was fine. Yeah. So in our first episode on this, we introduced the publisher of this textbook, which was a Becca books and some of their history, which was fun. We also discussed the global warming hoax, the ozone hole hoax, the evolution hoax, and how all of you physicists out there studying in school should be focusing on physics from a Christian perspective. So today we're starting off, though, with geology. Mm-hmm. So that's a fun one for all my fellow geoscience nerds. So that's yeah, fun. Yeah, all five of you. All three of us listening. Yeah. So the authors of our textbook first need to explain exactly why we can't trust geology from a non-Christian worldview. Quote, unfortunately, some areas of geology, especially the study of fossils, have become dominated by evolutionary philosophy. Oh, yeah. So I, I have to ask, you know, Dylan, you're like the you know resident philosopher here. So is there such a thing as uh, evolutionary philosophy? I uh, so there is the philosophy of evolution. Yeah. Philosophy of evolutionary biology. It's actually part of what my dissertation is about. I don't know about the evolutionary philosophy, though. I, I hope they have a clear explanation of what that means. <laughs> they don't at all. So therefore, we must be careful not to assume that the hypotheses and theories of modern geologists are the best explanations for the existing features of the Earth. God, the only eyewitness to the formation and geographic history of the Earth, sheds light on these areas in his word. And the statements of God are irreconcilable with evolutionary philosophy. And, I, and honestly, I, are we talking about evolution, philosophy, geology here? Is this mashup approach of every academic discipline is kind of confusing me. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I think it's kind of hard should, to keep up. Uh, you know, just to play it safe, we just assume it's irreconcilable with all of them and just throw yeah. them all in the trash. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I should also note that eyewitness is in quotation marks. I hmm. assume that they are being fuzzy about whether God literally has eyes. Yes, right. That's a good point. Continuing here, the Great Flood mentioned in Genesis, for example, is undoubtedly responsible for most of the Earth's present features and fossils, although evolutionists reject the flood as a myth. Let me, okay, let me, let me just rephrase this for maybe like an updated edition of this science textbook. Maybe this will help. Okay, evolutionary biologists don't study floods of any kind. How about we consult a hydrologist for our flood-related issues? See, the problem, though, is that even the the hydrologists have been infected with the evolutionary philosophy. Oh, true. Uh, You know, they talk about how you have steam that evolves into water that evolves into ice. It's still evolutionary. (sighs) It's, It's everywhere. Everywhere. The science of geology offers an interesting study of the Earth. The study of earthquakes and volcanoes helps us appreciate God's power and at the same time offers the hope of someday predicting dangerous earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. So I'm assuming the reason we want to someday predict dangerous earthquakes and volcanic eruptions is to evacuate people in time to save lives. But since we now know that these natural disasters, or I guess I could say supernatural disasters, are really just displays of God's raw power, can we just rephrase this to we want to stop the display of God's power to save human lives? I don't know if that would be better. Yeah, I mean, they talk they talk later about the what's how we need faith, yeah. how ultimately to believe in the kind of the, the godly creation of the cosmos, we need faith. And so if we have all of these displays of his power, 
that'll kind of get in the way of the faith bit. So maybe that's what they're thinking. What I really want to know, though, is how the flood explains volcanoes and earthquakes. Because before <laughs> they said the flood explains all the all the, quote, most of Earth's present features. So yeah. are volcanoes and earthquakes not part of that? That does seem to be a big part of Earth's present features. So yeah. I want to know how the flood explains it. I wonder if it's like a hydraulic thing, like the flood water pushed out all the volcano juice that's uh, flooding the planet. This creationist science textbook then jumps into the red hot controversy you're hearing about all over the news of the existence of Pangaea, the supercontinent from the late Paleozoic and early Mesozoic eras around 335 million years ago, which clustered around the equator and began breaking apart about 175 million years ago. So, you, so the people. so the start of 2020 then. <laughs> oh, oh. oh boy. Wow. So plate tectonics is not a sufficient answer to how this supercontinent formed or broke up, really. Because our science textbook authors suggest a range of other possibilities. Quote, some Bible-believing scientists have proposed that the breakup of Pangaea is alluded to in Genesis 10.25, which mentions a man who is named Peleg, which means division, because in his days was the earth divided. Others speculate that this verse probably refers to the political and social division of the nations of Babel, Genesis 10.5, 32, 11, 1, 8 through 9, Still others have pointed out that rapid drifting of the continents could have accompanied the geological upheavals during the great flood described in Genesis 7 and 8. Lots of earthquakes back then. Lots of options. But why even bother doing science at all since, quote, there is no way to experimentally verify the idea that the continents were once together. And since God does not clearly reveal whether it is true or not, it must remain merely an interesting speculation. So everything outside of the Bible is simply mere speculation. So I, that's good. You know, I have to, I, when I signed up to be a creationist biblical Christian, I signed up for certainty. I don't like, are we supposed to just ignore <laughs> God's word and not figure this out? I know. Because, you know, it's unclear and there's, I, this is, I, this is the conference I want. I want the biblical Christian conference where we hash out. This issue about the Pangea model yes. and how it alluded and what the Bible says about right. it. I also think we should create like an Earth 2 so we can experiment to verify the idea of how this <laughs> about how this happened. Oh, yeah, definitely. So there's one thing we know for certain, though, according to our textbook authors, quote, we know from the scriptures, however, that if the continents were once together, the separation had to occur much more quickly than evolutionists believe. Okay. Okay, so now, uh, wow. I'm, thank God, I was, uh, you know, uh, back to certainty. This is yes. what I signed up for. Jeez. The authors definitely aren't 100% sold on plate tectonics yet, uh, saying on page 204, quote, although the theory of plate tectonics is unproved, scientists do know that portions of the Earth's surface move in relation to other portions. Isn't that it? Isn't that the theory of plate tectonics? It you is, just got yeah. bits that are moving around? Yeah, it is. So, I, okay. Okay, I don't know what distinction they're making, but all right, have fun with that, I guess. Perhaps we should all just compromise here and accept expanding Earth theory instead, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, compromise makes me maybe. a little nervous. That seems a little <laughs> liberal to me, but I guess for now, for now, we can. Dear listener, have you ever taken a rejuvenating hike on a nature trail and basked in the breathtaking beauty of majestic mountains in the background and thought, man, I'm really glad 
God flooded the entire earth to kill off all but eight human beings and every creature to create these mountains? Well, you should because, quote, many Bible-believing geologists think that today's mountain ranges, such as the Rockies, the Appalachians, the Andes, the Himalayas, and the Alps were also formed by the titanic geological forces that God used to end the flood. The Bible seems to indicate that at the end of the flood, God caused the seafloor to sink and the continents to rise, allowing the flood waters to recede from the land and collect in what are now the deep ocean basins where the waters remain to this day. Hmm. So if, if you think about it, I mean, the science writers of this textbook believe in a sort of expanding earth theory. I mean, after the flood, the earth was kind of like stretched out. It's more like an elongated earth theory, maybe. I don't, so I don't basically, know. There, we back in the day before the flood, it was a lot more even. Yeah. And then, you know, God like put his foot where the Marianas Trench would be and then grabbed a hold of the Himalayas and just, yeah, just stretched it out. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that idea. I like that idea, too. So the flood didn't just, the floodwaters didn't just disappear. We still got the same floodwater. Yeah. It just, he just made the oceans deeper, basically. Yeah, basically. Yeah, just made, yeah. Because I'm assuming everything was a little more shallow, like you said. So, more even. So, chapter nine is titled Rocks and Minerals. But, sadly, there are no details on the crystal healing powers. So that's unfortunate. <sighs> What's the point, then? I know. Page 236, 9.2, Rock Substance of the Earth says, quote, Undoubtedly, God created many of the Earth's rocks when he created the Earth. The worldwide flood described in Genesis certainly caused great changes in the rocks as well, wearing away many creation-weak rocks and forming new rocks out of sediments and probably volcanic materials. Dare I say it, this sounds a bit like an evolutionary explanation oh all all the waters are rubbing these rocks around and changing them Mm -hmm. yeah i'm getting a little nervous getting a little nervous about this here well don't worry because we're because chapter 11 is called interpreting the fossil record and you know you know it's coming so what's the best way to start this chapter on interpreting the fossil record well with this paragraph quote that god is the creator of this world is an undeniable truth The founders of modern science supported this truth of creation, and the laws and principles of science also affirm it. Nevertheless, many scientists today have rejected creation. Instead, they credit chance, time, and energy with the origin of the universe and all that makes up the physical world. Which is, they're right. I mean, it's exactly right. I mean, personally, I'm an atheist. I accept evolution, and this is the holy trinity that I worship in the name of chance, time, and energy. Amen. I I say it every night. Yeah, we want to be we want to be clear because there has been, there's kind of been an evil takeover in the atheist church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you might've heard kind of probability being part of the atheist Trinity, but probability is the evil six, six, six fire Lord <laughs> version of chance. So it's chance. We need to take back the Trinity. So we're going to be talking about evolution a lot in this chapter. So let's define what evolution is first. Good, good strategy According, right up front. Yeah, let's define it. According to this textbook, evolution is, quote, the belief that the universe and all that is in it originated by natural processes over billions of years. Okay. Setting aside the fact that that is not what evolution is, per se, we we need to understand. That seems to be a big set aside. (laughs) Kind of a problem. It's got to set aside the fact (laughs) that that is completely wrong. We need to understand the contrast of evolution, which is special creation. Quote, instead of relying upon thoughtless chance, time and energy, there it is again, special creation depends upon a creator, 
the omnipotent, all-powerful, and omniscient, all-wise God. This is a science textbook. Okay. The earth was created in six literal days, if you recall. On day one, God, quote, spoke the earth and the universe into existence. On the remaining five days, God spent that time, quote, organizing the physical elements to form the sun and stars, planets, animals, and mankind. Their creative work was climaxed by the formation of man out of the dust of the ground. I, I do, I have to say, I do enjoy how the sun and stars are two distinct things here. That's kind of nice. Very different. Yeah, very di- I'm I'm more surprised a Christian textbook would even mention a climax. <laughs> I thought that would be. <laughs> that did give me pause when I read it. I was like, oh, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. A little. What is this? Dusty climax. All right. Everyone can turn because I'm assuming everyone's bought this on an, an accompanying chart. Uh, it's on page 267. We get a breakdown of the basic order of creation. So here we go. Day one. This is the first literal day. Creation of the earth and the physical elements of the universe. Creation of light. Keep in mind here, we have light without our sun being created yet, which seems wrong. But and I'm no, keep stars. Going. no stars. No stars at all. At all. Just <laughs> light. Day two, formation of Earth's atmosphere. Day three, formation of the continents and plants. I guess we're, we're just assuming the oceans were there from day one. So let's just move on. Yeah. I mean, maybe that, you know, the, the atmosphere covers that. Cause again, that's it's, true. It's the, uh, the oceans are much, there weren't really oceans then yet, yeah. because that happened after the flood is when God stretched out the right. oceans. So just might've been like, you know, a few clouds that they can rain, get a little bit of water, but nothing too that's extreme. A good point. Okay. So day four formation of the sun. There it is. The moon planets and other heavenly bodies. Day five formation of birds and sea dwelling animals. I actually, I love how God has solely focused on planet Earth for the first three literal days of creation. Then day four created the rest of the universe, then came back to create the birds and sea dwelling animals. That's kind of nice. Yeah, I I think God kind of got bored of just making planets. He's like, all right, I'm going to make Earth. Now I'm going to make a bunch of more of those. Yeah. yeah, And then he got bored. And so he's like, you know, I'm going to come back to my roots, try something different on this Earth planet that I used to, I used to deal with. Exactly. And then day six. Formation of land-dwelling animals and mankind. Yeah. Unfortunately, amphibians, reptiles, and other mammals were never created. Yeah, I mean, frogs are literally satanic. I mean, what do <laughs> we know true. from Alex Jones, the gay frogs? <laughs> um, this is this is where it comes from. Yeah. And also, day seven is not listed. So just because he rested. So I guess, I mean, that makes sense. There's nothing created. So because you can't just end on day six. That's a bit of a satanic number. The next part is highly important for teenagers to understand when learning about biology. I know this because it is in bolded italic letters. So here we go. The concept of special creation must be accepted by faith as also the concept of evolution must be accepted by faith. Mm. So it's a wash. Yeah, it's 50-50. So might as well go for the fun one. We are just briefly introduced to the misguided concept of theistic evolution, where God creates the universe, but then set up the evolutionary process to proliferate life over millions of years. The textbook says, quote, although some Christians accept this view, most realize that it is not compatible with biblical record or with established principles in science. Man, they're making everybody mad. (laughs) I know. Making God mad, (laughs) making science mad. Yeah. Can't win. I remember back in the day, we were like, Mm-mm, Catholics teaching that evolution. It's not good. Yeah. Not good. Yep. In case any of you think that this Christian science textbook has competition by the Bible itself, keep in mind that, quote, it is true that the Bible is not a textbook of science. So that's nice in the strictest sense. But when its author, 
the creator of the universe makes statements which have an impact on science, those statements must be considered scientifically authoritative. That seems fair. That does. You know, he is the creator of the universe. He did make it. Right. So he's going to know. The Bible and God as a direct eyewitness is the only reliable information available about how the universe, the earth, and all living things originated because, quote, no scientist was there to observe what happened. Which is exactly right. If a scientist doesn't witness something directly, it never happened. I'm, That's what I always say. I have to say, I I like to think of God as a scientist of sorts. So I'm oh, going to say true, there was one scientist the there. One. Big G-O-D. The science textbook doesn't think all geology is bullshit, however. It really just doesn't like modern historical geology. Because the main problem is that geologists are limited to, quote, observe the earth as it is today. They cannot speak authoritatively about the earth as it was in the beginning or in ages past. Therefore, science cannot make authoritative statements about the origin of the earth, period. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly that's exactly right. What did I eat for breakfast yesterday? Who knows? Who knows? I, I it's there's I uh, can't observe that. I know this one is going to upset my brother since he was just recently hiking and camping here. Actually, the Grand Canyon was not created by slow erosion over millions of years, but by, of course, you guessed it, the worldwide flood in the days of Noah. So. In fact, the flood is the answer to so much in the field of Christian geology. I am pretty sure if you just took a you know, took a multiple choice test in this course without studying at all and guessed the flood for every answer, you would probably get an A, at least like a B plus. Yeah, I think that that's smart test taking strategies right there. <laughs> um, is Does it say how the flood created the Grand Canyon? Is it more of the stretching stuff? I Because I was maybe. initially thinking maybe the water was like rushing past at the speed of light. And so it was erosion, but just it happened really, just really fast. So fast. <laughs> that is way more yeah, exciting. Maybe. That just, could be. There's no, it's just left, you know, like a good science textbook. There's just no explanations. It's just blanket statements and then moving on. Did you know that many of the greatest scientists of the past were creationists? In fact, Bible believing Christians? Well, on page 270 and 71, our authors list these great creationists in their fields of study. In fact, these scientists are so great that, quote, Einstein, not to mention Darwin, are trivial in comparison. And now on to one of the greatest topics of all time, evolution, an unproven theory. We are introduced to Charles Darwin, who wrote his book on the origin of species in 1859 after his voyage around South America observing wildlife. Evolution appeared in one form or another many times before, but, quote, Darwin presented the philosophy of evolution in scientific terms that made it seem reasonable. He was the only one. He was the only biologist at the time. That's right. Uh, who, who ever thought about evolution as just a general just concept. A yep. This textbook failed to define evolution before. So let's let's give him another crack at it. What do you say? Quote, the basic idea of evolution is the belief that the world was not created, but appeared and developed into its present form through natural means. Ah, mm. that's strike two. That's yeah. unfortunate. The study of evolution doesn't entail the formation of our planet. So that's a that's a false. Uh, that's wrong. I, I like the word choice here. The world appeared. It wasn't created. It's like one day the world just said peekaboo. You know, here I am. <laughs> just the, the world just, you know, lowered yeah. the blanket yeah. for the baby, uh, baby humanity to discover it. As mentioned before, many who cling to misguided theistic evolution have tried to have their cake and eat it too. But unfortunately, that is impossible because, quote, the very cornerstone of the evolutionary philosophy is that man is a product of nature. According to evolution, natural processes, not supernatural processes, brought the universe into being, built the earth, spawned life, and formed man. 
you I have to you have to you have to give this um, science textbook props that brings up um, supernatural things and teaching biology. I, I actually enjoy that. Also, I think we I think we just need a bizarro Darwin, someone to write the book, The Origin of Species by means of supernatural selection would be more like it. actually, I mean, somebody did write that book and that book oh, really? is called The Bible. Oh, yep. Already exists. Damn. Already, already happened. OK, OK, Let, let's let's try one more time. I swear this is going to be a third time's a charm. OK, let's define evolution. Quote, evolution is a concept that attempts to free man from God and his responsibility to his creator. Ah, oh. all right. So that's strike three. I'm thinking this textbook may not be right. I'm not sure. <laughs> it seems like these definitions are getting worse. I know. <laughs> you were closer to the first the one. Three. We've likely all had some geology classes growing up and were introduced to the geologic column. This is the geologic time scale chart divided up into eras, periods, and epochs. Well, under the weight of Christian geology, quote, the geologic column crumbles upon further examination. It is a, quote, hypothetical arrangement of fossils and rocks according to evolutionary assumptions. Keep that in mind. And the geologic column is the sequence of rocks that uniformitarian geologists must repeatedly find if the theory of evolution is to be supported by any reasonable scientific evidence. Must. Yeah. Stressful. It is. Got to find it. The authors understand the real danger in academia right now. It's not, you know, what you hear from Ben Shapiro. It's not feminism or critical race theory. No, it is geology. (gasps) Quote, (laughs) unfortunately, most students who study geology are taught this geologic time chart and what it represents without being taught that it is hypothetical and has little correspondence to reality. As, as I mentioned before, I, am, I think I said in another series that I have a B of S, a Bachelor of Science, that's a capital S degree in environmental science. Mm. Most of my classes were geology. So unfortunately, I was exposed to this indoctrination of the geologic column. And that's why I have, you know, it's, it's actually hanging literally in the room that I'm recording it right now. I, I light candles every night to it. I pray to it. So, yeah, I feel uh, we we're getting the energy of that geologic column yeah. in the podcast uh, because you're in it's in the very room that's right that you're in. So so their problem then I just want to make sure I understand this. Their problem with most geology classes is not that they teach the geologic column idea. It's that they teach it and then don't immediately say, oh, by the way, this does not correspond to reality. Yes. That's they want the combo. They want that. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, because I mean, you know, I noticed in this textbook, there is a lot of actual like correct things like they teach. They go through. I skipped a bunch of stuff with like they name a bunch of fossils that were found in a lot of in the time periods and stuff like that. A lot of it's right. So they're like, they teach like basically teach evolution, but then it's like, and it's nonsense, you know, and that's pretty much like the last sentence. It's like, <laughs> this is, we've been lying to you this whole time. The real truth is uh, yeah. the flood did it, but they lay it out there. So whatever, as we all know, in any good geology or paleontology textbook, you definitely want to talk about the dangers of applying logical fallacies. The authors explain the most obvious problem with the geologic column is quote, it is based on the very assumption it attempts to prove. There is no objective way to look at a sample of sedimentary rock and classify it into an era. Can't be done. It sounds like a problem. Yeah. And ironically, on the very same page is a section titled radiometric dating. But uh, let me let me finish here that the full title is radiometric dating 
is it reliable? So oh, there you and go. we'll get into more of this little, in a little bit here, but uh, let's continue on with these issues of evolution. The problem with evolution is that, quote, the major evidence of evolution is based on the assumption of evolution. That sounds like a problem. That's not good. Yeah. Let, let me just try and simplify this. Okay. This is from the book. The assumption of evolution determines the age of fossil bearing rocks. The age of the rocks determine the sequence of the fossils and the sequence of the fossils is said to prove the assumption of evolution. Oh man. It's a circle. It's a circle. Oh. I post this on the discord. Jeez. Sadly though, none of this is true. None mm. of it. Radiometric dating is a reliable way of determining the age of rocks and thus fossils. Oh, so that's, okay. um, so that's, a, that's a shame. We, might as Spoiler. well have not said any of that man so here i mean okay so this is like a super quick summary of how radiometric dating works and i'm definitely not an expert didn't i never even really had any of these classes or anything in my in my uh, class in my um schooling so natural occurring radioactive elements are everywhere and they are unstable so over time radioactive parent atoms decay into more stable daughter atoms so igneous rocks are formed when molten rock cools. These radioactive atoms are trapped inside. Scientists can then measure the quantity of unstable parent atoms left in the rock and compare it to the more stable daughter atoms and can have estimated the age of that rock. We talked a, we, we talked a little bit about this in our Phantom Time series. That's what it was. I uh, couldn't remember which uh, uh, series it was, but yeah, that's, that's right. And fossils are mostly found in sedimentary rock, so these are much younger rocks, too young for most radiometric dating methods, though radiocarbon dating can be used on some younger fossils. So for, for the older fossils, scientists can date the rocks surrounding the fossil, which give us a kind of bracketed age of the sedimentary layer in which the fossil is trapped in. This helps the scientists hone in on the age of the fossil, telling us that the youngest and the oldest it could be. Okay, so anyway, what about this section in this textbook asking the most important question um, on radiometric dating and if it's reliable. Spoiler alert, everyone, it's not. Quote, evolutionists use a technique known as radiometric dating to assign absolute ages to rocks and fossils, which, you know, like I said, bracketing a range of ages is not absolute, but we'll just ignore that and continue strawmanning. So the key problems with radiometric dating is that, quote, there is no way to measure how much of the element was in the sample originally, and radioactive dates are largely determined by the assumptions, there it is, of the person doing the dating. It's all about the person. That really matters about what they ate that day, what they think yeah, about man, life. Yeah, man, they could go like, they could add or subtract millions of years, you know, if they had a really bad pesto. Yes. To answer the first question, quote, evolutionists must take reasonable guesses, which are usually based on evolutionary assumptions. It's all about the assumptions, baby. I, I think I'm going to name my next pet evolutionary assumption. So next we dive into all these supposed anomalies of modern fossils, especially human skulls found in rock strata said to be millions of years old before humans are said to have evolved. On page 276, we have an illustration of the Swiss Alps, which has an upside down strata with 500 million year old rocks on top of 300 million year old rocks on top of 100 million year old rocks. Unfortunately, there is this thing called plate tectonics, um, which often causes things called thrust faults. Specifically in this situation, the upside down strata is part of the larger glarus overthrust. Uh, exactly how did this happen? Okay, well, according to NASA. Mm, ugh, never a straight answer. Yeah, I know. I guess I'll quote this. Quote, after these rock layers formed, they were eventually buried by newer rock layers until 
They lay well underground. Later on, as one tectonic plate pushed into another, the movement displaced the rock layers. Mm -hmm. So likely story, I say. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, sure. Most of this science textbook is full of creationist assumptions that is just nitpicking at non-existing problems with current well-established theories in biology but what can they offer us as a counter to these long-tested theories in the sciences what do they say is the explanation of this whole upside down strata in the swiss alps quote of course the obvious explanation from a biblical perspective is that the rocks are laid down in their present order from bottom to top and that the evolutionary assumptions concerning the fossils are wrong Mm. so good enough for me just it's always been that way next question so the next section trashes evolutionists for thinking fish could ever evolve fins functioning as legs to crawl out of the oceans onto dry land come on Unfortunately, this book was published prior to 2004, where paleontologists discovered Tiktaalik, a fish fossil from the Devonian period 375 million years ago that had fins that functioned as legs as well as also having lungs. So uh, they should have known better. They should have looked into the future. Should have prophesied that. The textbook authors go on to waste a lot of time making a very unclear point about how in 1977, a Japanese commercial fishing vessel snagged what many scientists thought was a pleosaur which went extinct 65 million years ago, that most likely turned out to be a, quote, badly decomposed shark. So they have a lot of pictures of this. <laughs> really kind of pointless. It's like, oh, oh, oh good, why are you showing me this? Though. Oh, maybe it's a dinosaur. Who cares? No, it's not. I in general, You don't want to be near anything that has decomposed so much it looks like an extinct creature that's my <laughs> that's, pretty that's my rule of thumb that's i don't want to you want to get that out of your refrigerator <laughs> as soon as you can um because it it's going to involve lungs oh god yeah it'll start walking out all right so finally we're going to get some detailed real scientific analysis of the geologic record that's what we've been waiting for which you can't do because no one observed it but you know <laughs> good point well anyway We know the Earth was created in six literal days. We know that most forms of radiometric dating are flawed for some reason. Not sure why. And we know evolution is based solely on, quote, evolutionary assumptions. So that's that's what we know for sure. We also know, Mm -hmm. though, that the flood account in Genesis is the answer to nearly every geology question. So use it. And uh, the authors are going to prove, however, that last thing I said was wrong because the flood can't tell us everything about geology, though. Okay, yeah, here we go. Quote, we can be sure that the flood occurred as the Bible tells us, but we cannot determine the exact geological effects of the flood upon the earth from reading of the scripture account. So that is that's good. That's refreshing. Yeah. So we got we're going to have a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah. We know the flood occurred, of course, but the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how long the flood occurred. Hmm. Many creationists believe it occurred around 2350 BC, a date calculated from the biblical genealogies of an Anglican archbishop. Woo woo. And James Ooh, I'm Usher. Surprised, uh, I'm surprised they're going Anglican. I know, but not all creationists accept Big Ush. Some consider the dates for the global catastrophe that didn't actually happen more like 3000 or 4000 years ago. However, most agree that the flood it's at least occurred less than 5,000 to 6,000 years ago. So I, we need some sort of like radiometric dating of these Bible stories, I say. Yeah, that would be that would be helpful. Like, I wonder, you know, you could figure out how much radioactivity Adam had and then kind of passed it on, you know, to his to his children. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think that would be super helpful. According to Genesis 7:20, the waters were high enough that the highest mountain at that time was submerged by water. So there were mountains, by the way. 
I guess not very big. Due to this, Noah and his family were on an ark for approximately one year. As most of us know from being five years old once, God had Noah built this big ass wooden ship to save Noah, his wife, the three sons and their wives, along with, quote, representatives of every kind of land animal from that time. So it's sort of a globalist UN of all animals. Just think I that. do like representatives <laughs> of every. We of the Giraffe League are sick and tired of the, the Rhino Republic trying to get in on our share of the meals. We all okay, so we know all this for sure. That's that's obvious. And and that this massive wooden ship was built to God's exact specifications. I mean, after all, son's a carpenter. Yeah. Oh yeah. Though according to the textbook authors, quote, as far as we know, it had no means of propulsion or steering. So at least they're honest. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you're just gonna if if God's gonna flood it and then deflood it, it seems like you don't it's not like you're trying to get anywhere. Yeah, that's true. You're just kind you're of just kind of hanging out until you know you're done. These creation scientist authors, you know, keep it real, though, saying, quote, the ark was constructed of gopher wood and waterproof with pitch, which is literally covering the identity of these materials is unknown. Mm, so that's man. keep the mystery alive. So this bit of honesty about what we actually know here is immediately thrown out um, in the following passage, quote, the ark had three internal decks divided into many compartments, rooms. It possessed a single sheltered opening along the top for light and ventilation. The only door of the vessel was watertight, set in the vessel's side, and large enough to accommodate the largest animal on board. So I mentioned earlier that a representative of every kind of animal was brought on the ark. The authors go into more detail here saying, quote, The ark was designed to hold a pair of every kind, not necessarily species, of land animal on earth. Aquatic creatures were not carried because at least some of each kind could survive on their own in a flood. Good point. So, okay. Yeah. Well, ignoring the fact that freshwater fish cannot survive in saltwater and vice versa, we'll just ignore that. I think I need a citation here because, I mean, if we're going to only use the Bible, specifically the story of the flood, to explain all of geology, essentially, um, we need the specific verses that the Bible, um, that it states freshwater aquatic animals were not brought on the ark. We don't know that. That's, they're just um, they're just saying that. Yeah, as far as we know, so they grew lungs bullshit. for a little bit uh, until <laughs> they didn't need them anymore. You know, we don't know. That's right. As we move through this section, we discover that dinosaurs were, of course, brought onto the ark. But let's not be ridiculous, Brent. See, I was, I was uh, assuming earlier. They weren't massive, you know, taking up all the cubits. Um, they they only brought baby dinosaurs on board. See, that's how this works. <laughs> oh, that's cute. Yeah, it is. It's kind of adorable. Oh, that's smart. So this section gets very specific with numbers. Um, quote, 30,000 pairs of land animals would have taken up about 700,000 cubit feet of, un- of usable space, plus a few thousand cubit feet for insects or just over half of the ark's capacity. Mm. And you actually kind of forget about the insects. And, yeah, and obviously all microorganisms can swim, so we can just ignore them. You know? Yeah, that's true. They're in the guts uh, of everything. That's very, so. uh, very true. Um, also, one thing to, to note, a uh, cubit is the distance between your elbow and the top yes. of your hand, in case you did not know that. Yes. So many animals, quote, remained in their dormant state while on board the ark, so that there was no drama. So we sum up here explaining that there is, quote, more than enough room left for seven animals of each clean kind, kind suitable for sacrifices, mm-hmm. Noah's family and provisions for all. I think I think right here is when you know 
you have a quality high school science textbook when it mentions suitable practices for animal sacrifices. I think that's perfect. You still got to do it. This isn't a game. You got to sacrifice those animals. You think God, God just killed everyone because he was so fucking pissed. Do you really think he's going to let Noah take a break on the sacrifices? No. I think no. So I, I, you know, and that, that, that brings a good question that they don't answer in this textbook. Maybe they do in like later editions, but it's, um, so they must've obviously brought, you know, four or whatever, you know, however many they need for sacrifice of the clean. And then the two that remain alive, because obviously you want to keep, keep some of them alive. You don't want to kill them all. Mm, yep. So that's, uh, they didn't go into that. So the authors dig themselves into a bit of a hole, um, almost accidentally accepting evolution when they bring up genetics as they explain how bringing a kind of animal could eventually turn into a variety of other animals. Mm. Quote, apparently there is a great genetic potential for variety in every organism's genetic structure. Whoa. Huh. Hold the presses. Slow it mm. down. Uh, oof, almost accidentally teaching genetics there. According to this book, fossils are buried according to where they drowned while desperately trying to reach higher ground as the global floodwaters rose higher and higher. Oh my God. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> it's even worse than evolution, you know, a bunch of death, but this is even worse. Jesus, what a scene picturing that in your mind. All right, so it is all about the animal's mobility. So, quote, smaller, slower animals such as snails and insects were probably buried first because they were unable to reach high ground mm -hmm. as quickly as stronger, more mobile animals. So, Dylan, this, this is probably the true explanation for the Burgess shale. Um, trilobites, hallucinogenia yeah. are slow as fuck. Oh, yeah. That's why they are buried in that, you know, supposed Cambrian period. Yeah, so. that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the one thing I'm, I, I am a little concerned about this, though, because I thought this is kind of where it gets a little confusing because they talk about how the water covered the mountains. Mm. But earlier they said like the oceans and the mountains were created in, in the elongated, yeah. you know, the, the elongated earth. So I'm a little bit, bit of a contradiction. You know, yeah, it seems like maybe that makes sense to a degree that, you know, some animals can get to higher ground uh, more so than other animals. Yeah. But the high ground wouldn't have been very high at this point. Right. So I'm a little... I, I, I have a feeling that this account is not correct. I'm thinking it might not be. Yeah. I, well, no one was there to, uh, yeah. to see it. Oh, I guess Scott, but yeah, I mean that, there you go. Boom. And also does, I mean, is that that like alluding to, you know, that's why there's all these little small critters at the bottom, but the, the really fast, like when you see the newer strata and you know, like the most recent, you know, time period, we're looking at, we're looking at, you know, cats and things that can move quickly, obviously fossils of really fast things, but. Yeah, I guess dinosaurs couldn't move fast back then. Oh, well. see, yeah, see if see if this was me, right? If I was gonna, I would say, yeah, definitely the faster animals. But it's because they were trying to outrun the flood. The flood was like a big tidal wave. Oh yeah. So at first, the animals are all horizontally aligned, <laughs> and then when God stretches the mountains upward, <laughs> that makes it look like they're actually vertically, okay. uh, vertically yeah, centered. That makes more that, sense. Yeah, see, this is, I should be writing this book. Wow, that is, that, yeah, that makes a lot more sense, actually. The outrunning the tidal Jeez. wave account of, uh, <laughs> of the fossil record. Yeah, and then the elongation of Earth. So our authors spend the next few pages pointing out, quote, not one transitional fossil has been found. Um, this isn't true, even when this book was published. So I skip past these few pages uh, to the more fun section on the difference between species and kinds. Okay, so, yeah, this is ooh, way better. This is necessary. We got to know this. So we can finally know the definition of what kind is 
in fantasy biology. But unfortunately, you have to become a $5 a month patron to get oh. access to our bonus episodes. Because next week's bonus episode is the conclusion to this creation science textbook, where not only will we be discussing species versus kind, but the evolution of man as a mistaken belief, obviously. So, Oh, I like that. that. And so with that, that ends part two of the uh, Brent's Science Creationist textbook. (laughs) Go to patreon.com slash none dare call it ordinary to hear the rest next week. But until then. We We are Thank you for listening to this episode of None Dare Call It Ordinary. If you would also like to hear our weekly bonus episodes, just become a $5 a month patron over at patreon.com slash none dare call it ordinary. That is also where you'll find any blog posts, pictures, and news updates to go along with our regular series. And you don't even have to be a patron to get access to all that fun stuff. You can also reach us by email at nondarecallitordinary at gmail.com. Lastly, we ask for you to please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever your podcasts are served.